If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And if, if you're not incensed, you're part of the problem. If, if you're not enraged, you must not really care about what's going on in the world and our society. If you're not terrified and angry, then you're complicit. How could you possibly think it's okay what just happened and what is happening? Well, welcome to an outrageous episode of the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Joel and I discuss outrage, how fun and addictive it can be, how we share it with our friends and family, and how it propels people into public office and keeps them there long after they should have been put in the no-no seat by an attentive school marm. And obviously we're talking about members of the party. Not your party, because your side is good, the other side is bad, so don't get mad at us. We, like you, are obviously the good guys. And if you want to know what is so good about us, check out tacticalfaith.com. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. We're willing to accept outrageous donations, but we'll be happy to have a chance to talk with you or to be prayed for by you. Follow us on Twitter at Wondering Wisdom or email us wondering at tacticalfaith.com. And in both those cases, there's an underscore where the A or the O would be in Wondering. And despite neither Joel nor I having won the election, Jesus is still Lord. Enjoy. So, uh, clearly this is an outrage, uh, what has taken place. We, we really need to work through it. Now, of course, Joel and I are recording this the Saturday before the election, so whatever I'm responding to as an outrage is unclear. But that's actually it is definitely the, outrageous. Yeah, it definitely is outrageous no matter what, what happened. But that's actually what Joel and I are going to talk That's the surprise topic. We're going to talk about outrage in the public square. We thought maybe this would be the time for it. Uh, we don't even know if we'll know the the outcome of the election as of the time this podcast comes out or not. But before we get angry or happy or whatever happens to be the case, we want to talk about how we should be thinking about ourselves. And really, the, the issue of outrage, I think, is, is forefront in a lot of our minds. Uh, it's kind of how people get you to vote is by stirring up outrage and there's there's much anger and frustration in our society, and it's not healthy, and I'm not sure it's helpful. So we're, what we're but it, but it's also very attractive. So this is what we want to talk about. So I think as good philosophers, what we should start off with is sort of defining our terms. And so I want to start off by asking Joel, what is outrage? Let's just start with that. What how, what do you think? What do you think of when you think of outrage? So I, when I think of outrage, I mean, some people would just say, well, it's being super angry about some, uh, some, some injustice or some wrong that has occurred in the world. And there's, there, there's something to that. There's, there's an element of outrage being perceived as almost a virtue by a lot of people. Like if there's something bad that happened and you're not outraged about it, there's a moral deficiency according to some of these people. And uh, the, there's an element in which you find what happened, what the person did or didn't do to be so atrocious that it's almost as if that person has almost sacrificed some of their humanity in doing that terrible thing. And, and it, it, you have to feel a certain level of anger about it, or there's something wrong with you. Are there appropriate times to be out, to be outraged? 
are there inappropriate times to be outraged and how do we how do we know what counts as appropriate or inappropriate outrage or is there no such thing as appropriate outrage so you're trying to get me to make our audience outraged because i'm going to say that there are very very few times when outrage is appropriate or or at least sustained outrage is appropriate you know we if, if you go back to the beginning of this year we did a podcast or we did a series on the seven deadly sins and we talked about anger you know i said some things then that i still agree with, with that anger is very dangerous and it's almost best to be avoided and if just anger is best to be avoided outrage is especially best to be avoided in part because it might not be that outrage in and of itself is always wrong, but outrage, it's very difficult to just feel a little or feel a little outrage and then move on to solving problems. When, you, when you're outraged, that te- you tend to continue to fuel the outrage and fuel how upset you are and fuel your judgment against other, you know, the person who, who has done this, this wrong, that you can forget that you should show compassion for the victims who were uh, affected by, by this act. Um, You can forget that we should actually talk about trying to solve this, trying to fix what went wrong. You can, you can lose sight that, that the person who, who did this is a human being that has dignity. And, and even if they're acting contrary to their dignity, we, we need to approach humans as, as people with dignity and, and try to redeem their dignity, even when they act contrary to it. And so all that to say, is there appropriate outrage? Maybe, but if you uh, persist in the outrage, it's not appropriate. Okay. So I'm, I want to, I want to pick up on a little bit of what you said, and maybe, maybe we can talk about different, see if there's different kinds of outrage. Cause I feel like one of the issues that comes from one of the reasons why outrage outrage is so widespread is because out, outrage tends to arise from problems that we're not we're not actually specifically dealing with or it, we're not dealing with in our own we generally don't deal with them in our own particular localities or in our own lives so i can be outraged over some event that took place you know in another country or or at the at some kind of governmental level or whatever, but usually if I'm if I'm outraged at a at a person that I know, then it's either my my sin is obvious. I should say either my failure is obvious, or I'm in fact outraged over something that's reasonably out that's actually in fact outrageous and m- maybe requires me to be really upset. I can think of a child doing some sort of terrible thing that you would never expect your child to do. And and you would imagine you're like, this is crazy. But the thing is you immediately deal with it. Right. Usually, usually you deal with the person or you confront, you confront the person or you, you have to do something like that. Now, maybe that's less as our society comes apart more and more, we're less connected, less, we're, we're more able to connect and less connected at the same time. It seems like outrage is more likely to develop because it, it seems to me that outrage arises in part because we hear about things that we have no direct access to solve. 
Right. Or at least at least this is part of the fuel for the amount of outrage. There's a series of issues that take place. I can't do anything about it. And nobody cares what I have to say anyway. So I don't have, I can't take part in dealing with the actual problem, the solution to the actual problem, nor does my voice seem to have any meaning in, in policy decisions. And so therefore I get enraged and I try to join with a mob and try to, I need to hurt someone, right? I feel this need for vengeance or something like that. Does that seem sort of, I mean, it reminds me of Nietzsche's idea of resentment or resentment, this idea of this, this helpless anger that because it can't strike out and hit the other person, now you have to bear with me here on this. This is Nietzsche. Uh, his idea was that the strong didn't fall into resentment because they would act upon their anger. And when you act upon anger, you like you, this is the way I kind of viewed it when I was, you know, young. You, you have, you're young, you're in high school, you get in a fight with a guy or maybe call it, I can't mention anything about having a beer together, but you get in a fight with someone and then like, you know, two hours later, you're best friends. Hmm. And there's a difference between that and hate, just this poisonous hatred of someone where it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they suffer. It is not enough. It's like this, this, this bottomless pit of hunger for rage. And that's what I feel like this. And, and it comes because I can't do anything about the situation. And I'm not saying you should punch someone. But sometimes I think that, well, let me leave that alone. Sometimes it might be better to punch than the kind of attitude we have. But you can't deal with the situation. You can't do anything about the situation. So rage builds up because you're in a you're sort of helpless, and you, and we're consistently flooded with claims of wrongdoing by by people, particularly the people on the other side. Of course. Um, so there's there's. There's there's something about that helplessness that is sometimes I would say is actually appealing to us because when we can't do anything, we we recognize that that in the intensity of our emotion is important for outrage, and so in order to sustain that intensity of emotion, we look for ways to demonize or or, or at least dehumanize our opponents such that we get to a point where, where where we become convinced that the only way someone could actually think that is if they are if they're stupid or if they're evil and you know they're they're and, and so they're you know it's either ignorance or maliciousness uh, but in both senses it's like you know we look at someone and say you're acting as less than human and that allows us to feel more of a sense of judgment uh, for or on that person um, or that group of people or however you want to you want to approach it, um, and that that's also part of the the outrage because there's a or part of the problem with outrage because there's a sense of perpetual outrage that has to be sustained, and the only way you can sustain outrage is by continually upping the horribleness of the situation, the horribleness of the person involved. Yeah, that's interesting. So you keep talking about outrage like it's a drug that if you you, you get, uh, you develop sort of a, uh, what, what's it when, it when it doesn't work as much anymore? Sorry, I just forgot normally. Tolerance. Yeah, you develop a tolerance for it. Uh, and so you, you, you have to up the ante. And so we go further and further and further 
in in determining or in in our est we go deeper and darker and more evil in our estimation of those that we disagree with uh either in terms of their stupidity or in terms of their moral monstrosity and we do that because outrage is like a drug that i'm developing a tolerance to mm-hmm. so maybe that's the kind of to- the only kind of tolerance our society really has <laughs> I- there, there's, it's troubling because when someone is outraged, so if, if we're going to get into some, some brain science here, which I'm just mentioning the word brain science kind of puts me uh, out of my depth. So, um, cause I, I want a brain. Eh, I want to admit that up front, but you know, th- we have this, this thing in our brain called the amygdala. That's our fight or flight response. And, when that gets triggered, we want to either fight or we want to run away. And But rational thought is kind of shut down when that the amygdala is triggered. And, and it stays shut down for 15 to 20 minutes. Because if you think of it, if you're in a situation where it's really fight or flight, in 15 minutes, it's probably going to be resolved. Um, and so that's that's how our, our brain is, is, is wired. And, but when we get outraged, we lose the capacity to have genuine rational conversations with each other. We, we lose the, um, the ability to really hear someone else. And so um, when we feel outraged, all that matters is our outrage. You know, it's, it's that the fight of our fight or flight response. And um, we have to find ways such that our amygdala is not so easily triggered so that we can better evaluate a situation and better recognize where it's an actual fight or flight situation and where it's a situation that we need to actually sit down and talk through these things. And, and, And outrage just shuts that down. I, if you try and have a conversation with someone who's outraged, it tends not to be a rational conversation. It tend they're, they're, the person is, and I'm saying this as someone who has experienced my fair share of outrage and speaking about how I am in those moments. You know, I, I'm not really interested in hearing what you have to say if you're trying to convince me otherwise. In fact, the fact that you're trying to convince me otherwise is a sign of how bad of a person you are and how how your moral. Uh, aptitude is is not where it needs to be um we when we when we're so prone to outrage we we lose the ability to have conversations to learn from each other and maybe even to make our case to someone else as to why we're outraged why why there's something wrong in the world that we we should have that you know maybe we should have these passion passionate emotions I mean, obviously, we think that these passionate emotions are are justified, but when we're when we're experiencing the outrage, it's really hard to actually explain that to someone, even someone who wants to hear you, or at least explain it in a way that isn't all about stoking the outrage in them as well, as opposed to giving them good good evidence or good reasons for for what's going on. Part of the goal here is to not have this amygdala response, 
but the thing is we have an amygdala response whenever we're in whenever we're confronted with something that is terrifying or hateful so it seems like the solution is to begin to see our neighbor as no longer terrifying or hateful despite how even if they have terrible ideas and so so how do i do that how do i begin to see literally hitler as a decent as as a human being i mean you know i'm using it as a joke right I mean, maybe we could even think of someone. I don't know if we want to jump to talking about some horrible uh, moral monster like that. But you may you may look at someone who, uh, I mean, we could bring up, you know, those who were generally part of the Nazi party. You know, the average member of the Nazi party, is that someone that we should, should have, that's someone that sh- someone should have had an actual, like, reasonable conversation with? And how do how do we see them correct? Like, is what's the right way to see them? Is it if it isn't if someone's a Nazi or if someone's a Mar, you know, whatever whatever the accusations are that's going around now. But I mean, we can just pick pick someone. If their views truly are morally reprehensible, and perhaps perhaps they're even trying to push for morally reprehensible uh, ways of enacting these policies or something, whatever whatever happens to be the case depending on who won the election. <laughs> I need to, it's not that I need to, because if, if I mean, you can bring this up, like why would I have a conversation with a Nazi or with a whatever? Like so, you can't have a conversation. Those people are terrible and they're horrible. And see, you hear the outrage building. Like why would I ever do that? That's crazy. You're a horrible person to have reasonable conversations with them. There is no reason. I, I recently heard a podcast with uh, someone from the organization Braver Angels uh, that was being uh, that was in in, in this uh, dialogue, and one of the things that he said uh, was that we identify ourselves too often by our policies that we support rather than the values that underlie the policies we support. And if we can take a step back and talk about the values that drive our our policies, then we actually find that we agree on the values, even if we have dramatically divergent opinions on how those values should best be enacted. You know, for, for instance, you know, in our present political moment, both sides on the issue of education agree we want our kids to get a good education. Now, there are some that are convinced that in order to do that, we need to to give more money to public schools so that our public schools can be better uh, sources of education. And we have others that think that in order to do this, we need to uh, create charter schools and uh, allow school choice and all those kinds of things. Both sides want a good education for the children. And when you frame it in that, then we can start having conversations with each other about the question, okay, what actually would bring about a good education for children? Um, I mean, we, we kind of talked about this last week when when I addressed the question about healthcare being a right. We Everyone wants people to get the healthcare that they need. I mean, unless you're kind of a terrible person. but. On the whole, we can all agree people getting health care for treatment of illnesses is a good thing. Now, 
the question is that where we where we diverge as a as a as a nation right now is does that is that going to be best accomplished through the government passing more regulations or by the government letting the market work or some combination of the two or you know the, and once we remind ourselves our goal isn't to get our policy passed our goal is to make sure people get health care then we can we can frame our policies we can look at evidence we can have discussions and we can still disagree and it's fine if we disagree but if we realize and can recognize that both sides are getting at the same values we humanize those that we disagree with in a way that allows us to say you know what i still hope my guy wins but if your guy wins maybe there's going to be ways that we can work together and and still bring about some of what i i mean bring about the value and and if we try your way and you're wrong well then would people in four years want to try my way? Hopefully you won't see them as completely morally reprehensible people, but see them as, okay, like they think this is going to bring about the value that we agree with. I think they're wrong, but I guess what we'll, we're going to find out and see. So you listen to, you listen to, let's say, a presidential debate or whatever. And in these debates... That, that, that's a very... Uh, that's the debate. The word debate is used very loosely in that. Yeah, sense. it's it's extremely loose because what it what these quote unquote debates generally are are two people who or more who claim that they're going to enact the best policy that will do the most things, cost the least amount of money, provide the most amount of jobs, and most amount of benefit. Um, and normally, my response to hearing something like that is. That's too good to be true. And if it's if you're right about it, everyone would be arguing for that policy proposal. Okay, so that's that's part of it. But this, you know, so you know somebody's keeping some of the information out, but the primary way that I hear people driving votes and so on and so forth are by making claims about the danger of the other opponent. Right. I mean, this seems to be I mean, when you call it, I mean, it's it's the negative political ads and so on and so forth, like that we talk about. But this seems to be the primary thing. I mean, everyone knows that the guy that you're not voting for in this election is just horrible. I mean, everybody knows that. And if, and it's a good chance that our very freedom, <laughs> the, the nature of our, our our very nation is at risk if the other guy happened to have won the election. And there's a point where you're like, these people, the people who are, the people who are running the show maintain power, not by presenting the best policies, though it's possible they accidentally, by (laughs) mere accident, they end up coming up with a good policy, but they, they maintain their power and authority by virtue of making you terrified or hateful of the other nominee. And I guess here's my question. If people are using, if they're stirring outrage for the sake, and I'm not saying all politicians do this, not at least not, not, they don't directly do it all the time. But if the, if there are a group of people who are in fact using outrage as a tool 
to maintain power. Is it right to have outrage at them for doing such a thing? (laughs) That is a great question. I would like to think that, I mean, part of the reason why they, they campaign that way is because it works. I mean, you know, we talked about that amygdala and I mean, they're, you know, if they, they know if they can trigger that amygdala, that, that what you feel is going to be more important than any factual information that can be given that's contrary, as long as you're feeling that outrage or if you're feeling the danger of, of what might might happen, that fear. And that's why it's so important that we can step back and say, hold on, this this isn't, you know, especially as Christians, you know, we're the the most common, uh, you know, you know, when it, when when God or an angel shows up, what is the first thing that's always said? Do not fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do not fear. And I think so many of us live our lives governed by fear in one way or another that we forget that we're not to be afraid that whatever happens in the earthly kingdom, our citizenship is in heaven and that our, our hope is not in who wins the election. Our hope is in Jesus and that hope will never fail us. But when we start to lose sight of that reality, it's a lot easier to get, to become afraid of, you know, and to fall into, to the trap that the politicians are putting before us. And so as Christians, if we can step back and say, hold on, we're not falling for that. We're not going to, we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to go down that path with you. Then we can have conversations with each other. I mean, there, there is a lot of divisiveness and um, we got to find ways to have conversations with each other. We got to find ways to remind ourselves of humanity and the dignity of those who disagree with us. Because if we don't, we're, we're not just talking about the division of a country. We're talking about the division of the church. Yeah. And that's not okay. Uh, we, we, we have to find ways to work around that. I mean, you know, people are, when, when we talk about unity, I mean, that's what Jesus was praying for before he went to the cross in the garden in John 17, he was praying that, that we may be unified. Now unity doesn't mean we agree on everything. Unity means that we recognize that we're all on the same team in the end. And that we can, we can have great discussions. We can have disagreements. We can, we can, we can, you know, get into these things, but it has to be done with the reminder that we, you know, we are members of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that is where our ultimate identity is found, not in being a part of one party or the other or supporting one candidate or, or, or the other, or, or even hating one candidate or the other. Our identity is found in Jesus and whoever wins the election our job is not to cheer or criticize them blindly. 
our job is to work work to to reveal the kingdom wherever we go, whatever we do, whoever wins the election. So there's there's a number of things there. Let me just kind of reiterate them. First of all, the people who use outrage to stay in power use outrage because it's because it works. If it stopped working, they'd stop doing it. Yep. And so don't blame them. Blame yourself. Uh, well, you and, can blame and, them too, but yeah. Well, you can blame yeah, and and it's probably something that we should try to call out. The thing is, we do call it out on the other team. Mm-hmm. We don't call it out on our own, mm-hmm. and so and it's because we realize that we're and because we believe we believe our side. Uh, the other thing is because it works. <laughs> uh, the other thing is is that no matter who wins the election. We as believers, now, if you're not a believer, then, you know, your hope is, I guess, in human government. So good luck. Uh, but uh, but if if we're believers, no matter who wins the election, my goal should be the same as it has always been. And that is to, like you said, reveal the kingdom here. And no matter who wins the election, I don't care if if it's I don't care if it's the best human being you've ever met in your life uh, or the one who is going to save the world or whatever this president is not Jesus and the lordship of this president is always a small L and always insufficient to the kingdom. Always. There's no human king who can ever bring about the kingdom that is, of course, Jesus is human, but fully human, fully God. But anyway, there's no other human <laughs> who can ever bring about the kingdom of heaven. It is manifest in the church. It's not manifest in the United States. It can be manifest in your area of the United States if you manifest it. Mm-hmm. And I don't care how much you love the Constitution, it is not the kingdom of heaven. And so, uh, and it, it's, sure, it's better than a lot of things, but it's, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not the same as the kingdom of heaven. So no matter whether we end up in a Nazi regime or a, a Marxist dystopia, depending on who won, because I guess those are the only two options. Um, the, uh, the kingdom of God will prevail and we should be seeking to present that. And so, uh, you know, fear not. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, it's against the rulers and the principalities that feed off of outrage (laughs) or drive outrage probably. And the person, the person with the opposing political sign in their yard who are either gleefully excited now or weeping in their house, they're not your enemy. No. We are we're all lost. And it doesn't matter even if you're even if you're a even if you're the correct political party, <laughs> we still just need Jesus. And yeah. so people are desperate and hungry for that. And that's I think that's part of what drives the outrage is the even among Christians, the belief that salvation, and this is going to sound rough, but the belief that salvation somehow does come through human kingdoms. I've heard, and bear with me here, because I know a lot, not a lot of people say this, but I've heard people say stuff like Trump is going to save Christianity in America or something like that. Or maybe Biden is more Christ-like or something like that. Eh, what are you talking about? Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. is church, and I know this sounds like these sound like platitudes, but I think it really is important for all of us to remember that we have plenty 
to be concerned about in bringing the kingdom, the kingdom which is at hand. You merely need to reach out and take it. It's at hand. We have plenty to do to bring that in our localities, which is what politics is fundamentally about. That goes back to what we've been talking about. Uh, how are you treating your neighbor? Are you showing love to your neighbor? How are you helping one another? Do they see Christ in your actions and in your life, or do they simply see whatever your political persuasion is? And uh, and meanwhile, you mind your own business and wait for the government to come in and fix your neighborhood, your town, your city, your state. So these are these are not small things. These are right. really, really important elements of it. And I think outrage is driven, again, outrage is partly related to the fact that we don't know what to do. Well, let me tell you, you do know what to do if you're a believer. You, we've been talking about this one since we started talking about politics. You know what to do. Mm -hmm. I don't care if the other guy gets elected. You know what to do. And so, uh, and the goal is to show love to your neighbor. And I think the more we do that, the less outrage will have power over us. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, like Travis said, our our battle's not against flesh and blood. So if it has flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. Um, and last I checked, all the, all humans have flesh and blood. We haven't gotten those those androids uh, yet. Um, <laughs> we will battle them when they come because <laughs> <laughs> they don't have flesh or blood. But yeah, um, exactly. But in, in in all seriousness, I mean, we gotta love our neighbors. We gotta we gotta work to the good of of our community work to the, work for the good of each other and whatever the government uh does is secondary tertiary at best to to that and um like travis said that's plenty of work right there i mean i, I if 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 i poured myself into loving my neighbor that's where I find my purpose, my identity, my value, not in who wins or loses the election. So um, we hope that this episode has given you some, some hope, has given you um, some encouragement to push back against those who are trying to make you feel afraid, those who are trying to stoke your outrage. We we've we've talked a lot about you know politics the last I think five six episodes you know we were doing it in, in the build up to the election but really today the day after the election when this comes out now is when we put this into a, into really into practice all of our discussions about politics leading up to the election were, weren't about the election they were about what do we do now they're about what do we do every day if you put your hope in that ballot you cast every two or four years, your hope's in the wrong place. And it's so easy to put it in the wrong place, but we gotta put our hope in Jesus because that's where, where we find meaning and purpose. May we look forward together to giving glimpses to the world of the kingdom of heaven. But for now, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.